This is The Guardian. I'm Grace Dent, and this is Comfort Eating from The Guardian. A podcast where we pay homage to the lesser celebrated foods in life. Because even as a restaurant critic, I believe the food that matters most is often that snack you cobble together when you're curled upon the sofa. Each week, I ask my guest to lift the lid on what comfort foods have seen them through their lives. Because you can tell a lot about a person from what they eat behind closed doors. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, friends. It's an overused phrase, but honestly, I think that we're in national trash territory here, arriving through that very front door, in a moment, we have Graham Norton. He's coming over for a good old chat. Not before I fuel up with a snack. Look, I'm on the last of the Crimbo Ferrero Rochers. I'm going to make it into a hot chocolate. It's a little trick. I've been um, microwaving them and pouring milk, stirring, and basically just mainlining them, <laughs> just pushing them into my face as quickly as I can. I love a Ferrero Rocher. Graham Norton is an Irish actor, comedian, commentator and presenter. He's best known for his five-time BAFTA award-winning chat show, The Graham Norton Show, which has seen him invite celebrity guests onto his couch for over 15 years. He's an author with four novels to his name, and before all that, he acted in three episodes of Father Ted. Graham is such a staple on our TV screens. We all feel like we know him, don't we? But there are layers of mystery that I want to uncover. Not least, I want to know what this media maestro is munching on when the TV set is shut up for the day and he's back at home on his own couch. Okay, it'll be here soon, but first just a little sip of this. Mmm... This is why people see me as a pioneer in food. Graham Norton, welcome to Comfort Eating. Thank you very much, Grace. Look, 
right now I am dressed up to the nines. I've got some jewellery on. I've got my makeup on to welcome an esteemed guest into the house. The truth is I am feeling a little exposed though because we go to the same gym. I know, that is embarrassing. And not long ago you witnessed me with a rather sweaty boob cleavage midway through doing six Bulgarian split squats. (laughs) Right. And I just think there's something very vulnerable about being seen in very tight lycra. I am so with you. Whenever I see someone in there, I, I hope, I think to myself... That looks like Grace Dent, but hopefully it isn't. And then I'll be saying to my trainer as we're kind of pushing something, I'll go, and then if it, then then you've got to say hello. But equally, it's it's weird. It's like we owe each other money or we've had sex or something. It's that vibe. Graham Norton, this is a point in the show where uh, you introduce me to the snack that makes you happy. I do not know. What is under this tea towel? There's, it smells quite nice. There's something, there's a, there's, a, there's a nice aroma. Do you want to unveil your snack for me? Well, all I'll say is I listen to this podcast. And I think some people try very hard. You kind of think, oh, come on. But this is genuinely, this is genuinely something if I'm in the supermarket and I'm coming home and I just want well, a bit peckish, I, I know what I'd love. And it is this. It is a very simple... Scotch egg, <laughs> Waitrose Scotch egg. None of your fancy because Waitrose have Waitrose have overcomplicated the Scotch eggs. Yeah, there's now kind of sort of, sort of Indian summer and yeah. weird ham weirdness. Yeah. This is your plane, and just have a little bit of ketchup. And I like, I mean, today it's your cutlery, but I like to serve it on a small plate with a small knife and fork, so it feels <laughs> it feels like a tiny feast. Oh, no, got, oh, you got me you got me a small fork thank you very much oh, so you feel like you're like a little lilliputian <laughs> yeah first a lilliputian oh, i'm not sure i can eat this whole egg oh, <laughs> it's, so, it's so big alan, right. Tr- alan sugar has the small fork diet no yeah it's how he lost weight uh he invested in a small fork so he takes smaller <laughs> forkfuls and i think gets bored eating and you know you can laugh at it it worked he did lose weight Anybody who's thinking that this is like a tiny picnic egg would be mistaken. This is a big, brassy, I'm going to say balls out Scotch egg. I'm sensing it's warm. Is it warm? It's been microwaved for about 40 seconds. Heavens above. You've microwaved it. For 40 seconds. 40 seconds precisely. Well, you don't want to, because if you do it too long, it gets soggy. But you just want to take the, the room chill off it. Am I just... Ha- do you half it? Well, you know, you, you literally get the scotch egg yeah, yeah. with your knife and fork. Yeah. And it, I don't think anyone's in the history no, of, look, look. Of, of Scotland. Yeah, and then I would I would normally quarter it like that. So then you end up with a, you know, a feast. A little bit of ketchup in the thing, and then you just dip and then you go. Look at your face of absolute joy as you put that into your mouth. I'm delighted. It's the fact that the pork's grey. Is that grey? It's not brown, is it? Well, no. It's not pink either. Uh, So you're safe. (laughs) It's like, I think a a scotch egg feels, in theory, it should be nice. Oh, but it's the the fact the breadcrumbs aren't crisp. The pork no longer tastes of pork. How long's that egg been in there, though? Who knows? fascinates me. And how do you cook one? Like, I like buying them and eating them, but how do you hard boil an egg... Do you then put it in raw sausage meat? 
It can't be. It must be cooked sausage meat. And then you deep fry it or fry it or something. I don't know how you make it. Well, I know that if you go to a gastropub, then the middle is lovely and runny. Now, how you do that, I don't know. And actually, there are some other supermarkets who I've forgotten that. They do a runny one, but they're quite hard to eat on the go. The thing is... I can, I can shovel the one of these in my mouth as I'm cycling. Oh, that's a really erotic thought, actually. <laughs> Just you, you with the... Uh... You at the traffic lights, yeah. slightly sweating, eating a, eating a scotch egg like an apple. I keep, keep my head down so no one recognises me. How long have you been eating scotch eggs for? Oh, a long time. I think, though, they're a, a since I came to England thing. I, yeah. I don't remember ever eating a scotch egg in, um, in Ireland growing up. That's I, when I, you knew you'd got to the big city. This is sophisticated. <laughs> <laughs> this is sophisticated. This is like, wow, I'm living abroad. Look what I'm having. <laughs> Your first postcard home. Yeah. Eggs. Yeah, Scotch <laughs> egg. Oh, of course, it, I know it is a Scotch egg. That's where they're from. Yeah, that's where they're obviously from. Yeah. Let's go back to those days in Ireland. Okay. You were born Graham William Walker on the 4th of April, 1963, to parents Billy and Rhoda. You grew up in the town of Bandon in yeah. County Cork, along with your older sister, Paula. Take us back to those early years of your youth. What did Bandon have to offer to Graham as a young boy? I mean, very little, to be honest. It was just, it was, uh, it was like a waiting area. It was like, it was like a departure lounge yeah. is what it was. And it was, and it was as much fun as a departure lounge. <laughs> um, I really was just waiting to go. Yeah. Um, you know, I would watch telly and that was my, departures board that was where i was heading if there was one show playing on this television in this imaginary departure lounge that made you want to leave what what is the show in a way it could have been anything because yeah. uh, i watched whatever was on we only had the one channel and i watched it all but i suppose the big hitters would have been things like charlie's angels yeah. chips I remember Chips because that was two absolutely gorgeous men on motorbikes, wasn't yeah, that? Yeah. And then Charlie's Angels, just gorgeous women being gorgeous and fabulous. And of course, it's that funny thing. When you're in Ireland, you think you're watching American television. Mm. And it's only when you get to America, you realise, oh no, it's California. Yes. <laughs> this yeah. is where they make everything. What were your mum and dad like when you were a little boy? They were kind of getting on with it. They were kind of making sure that me and Paula were being, you know, clothed watered and fed um did they uh, both work no my dad worked for guinness uh the brewery oh um he started off as a service rep and then he was a sales rep moved around a lot and here's the weird thing now that i'm well i'm 59 i think he took early retirement at 50 i mean i mean i can't imagine just yeah Packing up tools at 50. I, uh... And he didn't really have any hobbies or anything or interests, it seemed. Yeah. So I think yeah. it was quite hard for my mother after that. Did they know you were going to go? From, from when you, so you're a little boy and you say you're waiting in the, the, the departure lounge. Did they encourage that or did they try and... I think they tried to manage my expectations, you know, in... A, I would say... it. And this sounds like they were bad parents, and they really weren't. They, this was all done with love. Um, I think they they sort of bred us for failure because that way that way you would never be disappointed or upset. Meal times 
back then when mm-hmm. you were a little boy? Were they a family affair? And what was on your plate? Uh, they were very much a family affair. It was all, you know, the four of us uh, sitting down together. And I was kind of growing up in, you know, coming to that, being aware of what I was eating, sort of late 60s, early 70s. And so there was a change. So, you know, we did have, yeah, there was lots of traditional stuff, you know, mm. like the boiled hams. And my mother was great with offal. She'd stuff a heart. She'd do something with liver. And, you know, she'd do all those things. But equally, we were beginning to get the, I can't remember, were they called Vesta? Vesta Vesta, Vesta chow mein and stuff. Box. In the box. With the those little noodles that you'd fry in the pan and stuff. We'd get all of those, and that just seemed impossibly exotic and crazy. But my poor mother, so she would make one of those meals for all of us. My father, and he was not a demanding man. He was so sweet and gentle and not this guy at all. There had to be potatoes. It was not dinner unless there were potatoes. See, I thought this was a myth of our island that there was these men that were passionate about potatoes. I feel I might be one of them. Mm. I often, I often in a posh restaurant will go, this is delicious. And I'm looking around <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like a dog. <laughs> Anyone? No. Is, is everything on the table now? Is that all that comes with this? <laughs> Look, are you saying that your mother when you were a little boy, used to stuff a heart and serve it to you. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I don't know what the heart of what. What would it have been? A lamb heart? Uh, it must have been a lamb heart. It must have been a lamb heart. I mean, a cow heart would be the size of a turkey. I mean, she would, she'd have had to have <laughs> had a couple of people to carry. That feels quite macabre. <laughs> um, yeah, a lamb heart. Um, I mean, back in the 70s, I definitely remember going to the shops to buy pig's hearts. Oh, maybe maybe it was a pig's Tiny, heart. Tiny. Yeah. Little. These were little. What did she stuff it with? Uh, stuffing. Uh, you know, some sort of breadcrumby, sage, oniony. It wasn't like a Christmas stuffing. It yeah. wasn't like sausage meat stuffing. It wasn't. It was something else. I don't know what was in there. I just can't imagine a little boy sitting there with his knife and fork. Tucking into the valves and yeah. things that were... No, I quite like that. See, that is why you're okay about these Scotch eggs. <laughs> anything from then on, there's no arterial bleed or anything No, going. exactly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Our teenage years are a time of expanding horizons, pushing boundaries... Did the confines of rural West Cork offer much in the way of self-discovery and adventure? A little bit. Um, There were kind of exotic people Mm. who'd come to West Cork. Uh, You know, potters. And uh, I remember Fred Astaire's grandson was at our school. I remember after he left, my mother bought his trousers in a second-hand uniform sale. Um, I know, me with my hips, I managed to go to them. Who were you running with? No one, really. Very few people. Uh, I was friends with a few girls in my year. Mm. And that was about it. I was, you know... uh, And I don't think I was particularly antisocial. I would chat to anyone. And, you know, I would say the odd funny thing in class and stuff. So it wasn't like I was just moping. But equally... You had had one eye on the door already. uh, (laughs) Awful aside... Did you start to get adventurous with your palate in your teens? 
did you have any really eye-opening moments around this point? Uh, the big eye-opening thing in my teens was when I went on a French foreign exchange <gasps> trip. Um, I went to a little town near Toulouse. And Gilles, he came to Ireland first. And so my mother was peppering about this because there was all these horror stories about these French kids coming to your thing and they didn't eat anything and they went home emaciated and ill and you know, there were angry letters. So my mother was terrified. But anyway, Gilles arrived. Now, God loves Gilles. He ate everything, right? He really <laughs> never complained. And, you know, he, some of the stuff he was having, you know, he was yeah. eating his instant whip and, you know, stuff that would make French people cry. Um, but... He edited all. He edited all. And I remember when we were at the airport and, you know, we were all flying off to France into the wild blue yonder. Uh, my mother, I, I, I don't think she did this, but I remember it as if she held my shoulders. And she just looked me in the eye and she went, eat everything you're given. Yeah. Like I was eating for Ireland. Yes. You know, the pride of the nation relied on me. <laughs> and... And, and it was as if the French family had heard her because, oh, it was like I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. I mean, they really tried. They pushed me and I never, ever said no. I edit all. Okay, I'm thinking tuby sausages so, oh yeah 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 all the pissy sausages oh yeah it's and what well, uh lights a lot of spleen they like a they like yeah. a kind of like a spleen aligning that's the worst, what they like the worst one was uh for breakfast this was a thing called tete de veau yeah and it's basically sliced up calves head floating in <laughs> aspic so you're like you're, you're cutting it in and you're like clearly that's a nostril like, I, I, I'm, we can't even pretend that is just a nostril. You know, at least have the courtesy to mince it up and wrap it around some egg and deep yeah. fry it. But no, just a nostril. I ate that. Here's the thing. I'd never eaten cheese before I went to France. I was about 16, maybe 17. Did not like cheese. But it was great. It opened up all of these tastes to me. And it made me, you know, it... it because I think when your kids, all children are conservative with a small C. Yeah. And it knocked that out of me really early doors. You grew up with a pen pal, very glamorously called David Villapando. I know. One summer. Whilst at university, you travelled to America on a student visa to visit him in California. How did this very wholesome summer jaunt end up being over a year long? Well, uh, <laughs> what happened was, I mean, Dave Villabando, so I had lots of, back. this was back in the, yeah. the late 70s, everyone had pen pals and I had loads of them, Indonesia, you know, Australia, Canada, mm. everywhere. But the one I settled on was David Filipando. And we sort of came out to each other in in our letters. But of course, I'm living in Bandon. He's living in Los Angeles, California. So How did the conversation even come round to this in the letter? Because my experience of pen pals in the seventies was that you just almost bored them to death. 
<laughs> but those are the foreign wrong. ones. Did you not have any American ones? Because you could actually have conversations with them. Whereas if you're talking to France or Germany or somewhere, it is very much kind of like... Je uh, joue au Bobby foot. Yes, and we do two years of exams before we go to university. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. with with David Villapando, it went from that to... Okay, and then it went to, and then it went to, he was doing things about it. So it was like little uh, pale blue airmail porn would arrive every couple of weeks uh, with his adventures. So it was very exciting. So when I was getting out of Dodge, there's this J1 visa you can get if you're in, in Ireland, which means you can work in America. So I went there and like... This, oh no, it was the early 80s. But even so, I went with, I think, £200. And that was going to last me for a month while I got myself settled. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was gone in (laughs) 10 days, tops. And I had a Rambler bus ticket. The bus ticket ran out in San Francisco, as luck would have it. So I'm now in San Francisco. He's in LA. And this is the bit of the story I do not come out of the story well here I sort of forgot all about him then so I never met him oh my god and I as an adult I've tried so hard to find him I don't know if he's still in the land of the living uh, but I have emailed a lot of David Villabandos and never got a reply what happens next why didn't you go home when the money ran out Um, I got a job because I was able to work Uh, so I got a job in a a French kind of sandwich shop it was called Vie de France And I enjoyed it so much, met lots of great people there. And then I was living in this hippie commune because it was cheap rent. Mm. And then that was a totally different experience. It doesn't feel like you were a hippie at this point. You know, like you're, you weren't a hippie in Ireland. You're quite a, you know, a straightforward person. And then suddenly you're in San Francisco and. Well, I suppose because it made economic sense to be a hippie. (laughs) Because, uh, so if that's if that's how you get a, a cheap room, yes, I'll do this. Did it have a name? It was called Star Dance then. It's called something else now, and I can't remember what it is, but it's still there. I've, I mean, I've got to ask, what's the food situation like in a hippie commune? A, do you all have to eat together and pretend to like Moonbeam or whatever your neighbour's lentil dal? And is it always dull? Do you know what? It was never dull. Dull <laughs> every day, <laughs> but never dull. Um, and it's where I kind of learned to cook. Uh, so now I cannot cook for one or two. I mean, if I make a meal, six people could easily show up every time. Now, sadly, I eat that. Uh, <laughs> That's the problem. <laughs> that is though. the problem. But it, I just, I worry about quantity. Yeah. So there was, I was cooking for like 12 or 14 people. And mm. I mean, when you say dread the night, I mean, the nights that my name come up on the chore wheel for dinner, they must have gone, oh no, <laughs> it's him. And yet when I went back, uh, there was a reunion, a kind of 25th anniversary or something a few years ago. And I went back and I met one of the women there called Erica. And she went, oh, Graham, we still make your soup. We call it Graham's soup. I'm like, what? What What soup? And of course, you will roll your eyes. It was a leek and potato soup. <laughs> um, and I don't know how I knew to make that. I mean, imagine, I imagine Erica taught me how to make it. Yeah. And now I've given it back to her as my soup. So 
in a hippie commune? Was it all about free love and free expression and... There was some free love, but, like, I remember, even as that young kid, resolving to not come back to Ireland and laugh at them. Because by the end of that year, I had such respect for them Mm. and their beliefs and, and the fact that they're still you know, out there, they're trying to still mm. kind of protesting for change and, you know, trying to lead by example in a way that I, I wish I had those sorts of principles. I, yeah. it's kind of one of yeah. my, the biggest regrets of my life is that I don't live my life like that. Finding your perfect home was hard. But thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. Like so many people arriving in London in the 80s, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, your 20s were spent working in restaurants. Were you a good waiter? Oh, see, now I started off as a really good waiter. I was very keen. I wanted the people to have a nice time. I was very enthusiastic. Um, But I was Irish. So, like, I think back now, things like... Uh, you know, at the end of the meal, I'd bring over the dessert menus and go, would you like dessert? And people would go, no, thank you. And I go, are you sure? <laughs> like yeah. Mrs. Doyle from Father Ted. <laughs> uh, because in my head, that was just, that was etiquette. Yeah. You know, you forced dessert on people because it was their job to say no. And then it was your job to go, ah, you will. Ah, go on, go on, go on, go on. <laughs> And people must have just thought I was the pushiest waiter in all of London. And then over the years, uh, uh, boy, did I fall out of love with it. And... After about eight years, it's really lucky I was able to get out or there might have been a fatality. Uh, I don't know. I, I might be in prison now. One of the places you worked, which kind of blows my mind a bit, was the Eagle. Yes. In North London, which is regarded as the first gastro pub. Yeah. You know, downstairs, you'd be found pulling pints. But in the end, it it was the upstairs room that changed your life. It was because I, I, I left drama school, wasn't working and then but still wanted to show off. So working in restaurants, I developed this stupid thing of when I was, you know, polishing glasses and we're all standing around just gassing before we opened for the day. Uh, we were polishing glasses and I would put the Irish linen tea towel over my head and I would do uh, like an impression of Mother Teresa of Calcutta. Which is funny for about 20 seconds, maybe 15. I would start every show with, uh, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, the unborn. No, uh, <laughs> so she was kind of, is there a lot of hand wringing? Very, yes, a lot of hand wringing, but she would do things like she would uh, demonstrate the Holy Trinity uh, through Scots. using Tupperware. Because, oh uh, you know, they'd go into three yeah. into one. Do you see? <laughs> Father, Son, Son Holy Ghost. Holy yeah. Ghost. Yeah. It was clever stuff. Right. Uh, but there was an hour of it. Anyway, I, I said, can I use the gallery upstairs to put on a little show? They said, yes. 
Then people started saying to me, oh, I hear you're doing a show, you know, in a couple of Thursdays time. Yeah. And that made it happen because, you know, I wasn't really going to put on a show in the gallery because yeah. come to it, I'd have to write one and da, da, yeah. da. But now it was happening. So I did it and I was, I'd sent out all these press releases and things and little bits of Irish tea towel uh, stuck to cards. It's like a, like a relic. And um, <laughs> and people came and Emma Freud, Emma Freud from uh, Radio 4, Loose yeah, Ends, she came and a woman called Judith Dimmitt. I think Judith Dimmitt maybe came because she heard it on Loose Ends and she was involved in the Pleasance up at Edinburgh and there was a cancellation. And so I got straight in to do kind of two weeks at midnight in the Pleasance. I mean, that's scary, though, because you went from... I mean, essentially fannying around in a kitchen to at the Pleasance with two out two weeks to fill. Yes. Really quite quickly. It was very quick. You know, on paper, great that I've got this kind of yeah. high profile kind of entree into the world of comedy and, and the Edinburgh Festival. Um, it doesn't pay any bills. Yeah. And, there's, and it, it took me a couple of years to figure out that Mother Teresa was quite a niche act. It was never, it was never really going to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. I was never going to do the comedy circus as Mother Teresa. Yeah. So then I did some kind of other comedy characters, and then, and then finally I kind of bit the bullet and went, "Look, this is stand up, so I might as well just call it stand up." And that's when I started making a living. So Graham Norton, your first eponymous show starts airing 1998. It is a heady mix of chat show sexual innuendo and audience participation, often all at the same time. Having a TV show named after you, it must feel normal now because you've been on our screens for 25 years. It feels like your career, though, really turned a corner at this point. Is there a specific moment that you thought, holy hell, I'm really famous now? Ooh, I remember there was a, we were in five nights a week by now. And uh, Big Brother was on at the same time as us. And it was a Thursday recording. And we had Dustin Hoffman on. And we did a sketch where he was impersonating people from the Big Brother house. Yeah. And it had gone really well. And Dustin Hoffman had been this great guest. And Myself and Jon Magnusson, the series producer, and Graham Stewart, the executive producer, we went out for dinner and we were in the OXO Tower, you know, right next door to the studios there. And we were up on this, it was a lovely night, it was a balcony looking out over London. Mm. And I remember that night feeling like we were at the centre of something. It felt very now. The success of our show, the huge success of Big Brother, those guests... We're in London town. We're literally sitting on top of it. And and it's rare that you get... It's Normally you get to appreciate that in retrospect. Normally you look back and go, God, do you remember we were kind of the thing then? But we were able to appreciate it while we were in it. Of course, you're now... Most often seen on our screens hosting The Graham Norton Show on BBC One, your chat show which sees you and the great and good of Hollywood pop megastardom and society at large sitting on the sofa having a natter. 
Like one of my favorite things about the show is this intoxicating mix of people you get on together, people who would never have crossed paths otherwise. So you've got Arnold Schwarzenegger, Miranda Hart, Ronnie Corbett, and Usher <laughs> all sat next to each other, which is incredible. So this sofa, it reads like someone's fantasy dinner party lineup. Whose chemistry has really surprised you? Ooh, a lot of people's chemistry has surprised me. Where they, they just, they have a kind of inner confidence that I didn't expect them to have. Or sometimes it's a serious actor who turns out to be a clown. Like Dustin Hoffman was one where I was like, I was sort of dreading having him on because I just thought this is going to be such hard work. And then he showed up and he was just an absolute hoot and a holler and a laugh. Um, and then these younger people like uh, Chris Pratt from all the Jurassic Worldly movies. He's so great. Uh, He's a revelation, yeah. isn't he, Chris Pratt? Now, he, doesn't he really love The Only Way is Essex? He does, and does a really good <laughs> Essex accent. It does an amazing Essex accent. Um, and then, you know, then there's people like uh, Miriam Margulies, who uh, her thing doesn't surprise me mm. uh, because, you know, I know Miriam and you, you know what you're going to get. But what she brings to the chemistry experiment of the couch is pretty special. And it's so great because you see the Americans sitting beside her and they think, oh, I'm sat beside some dear old grand dame of yeah. British theatre or something. And you see her, the little twinkle in the eye. Yeah, and then you're, here it comes. And then boom. And uh, stand back. I always wonder about the placement of where people sit on the sofa. Right. Do some stars ever come along and expect to be maybe closer to you because that's a better seat and do they row with each other and that does happen Mm. weirdly um and it's our fault really because we what we should have done all along was mix it up so that the biggest star wasn't near to me but now it is seen as the person sitting next to me is the biggest star on the sofa okay which sometimes means that huge stars, for whatever reason, have never sat... Like, Bradley Cooper has never sat next to me. Yeah. There's always been someone more famous than him. Has anybody ever walked out and just changed seats at the last minute? Uh, that has happened once. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they walked out together. There were two actors. They walked out together. And one of them was supposed to be sitting next to me. And uh, the other one just didn't sit down. <laughs> he just waited. It's quite something to see. Um, uh, yeah, just waited. I mean, obviously, you're not going to tell us who those no, people you could are. No, sp- you could spool through. But who, so the reaction of the other guests, what did they do? And who, what were their names? Oh, the, no, the other guests, I don't know. But also, they wouldn't have cared. because They couldn't see. Yeah, and also, we're not down that end of the couch anyway, so... It doesn't matter who we're next to. Would you argue that even if you're at the other end of the couch, it doesn't really matter because you're equally as focused on everybody, so it's all nonsense? Absolutely. It is all nonsense. Um, I think often what it means is your product will be the first one discussed. But as a guest, as someone, if you just want to show off and tell stories and be funny and be part of the show, sit wherever you like. You know, I always say that to them. There will be a moment in the show when I'm looking you in the eye and asking you a direct question but equally, if I'm not, if you have a question for someone else, ask it. If somebody says something that reminds you of a story, tell it. You know, if it bombs, it doesn't matter. We'll cut it out. It's fine. Yeah. 
Do you ever take your guests out for, and I'm going to use an 80s Beano term, a slap-up dinner? <laughs> um, not now. No, yeah. not now anymore. Uh, but back in the Channel 4 days, uh, because we couldn't get guests, uh, I was like a kind of spoilt brat millionaire where I would just go, I'd like to meet the mother from the Waltons. And they would fly in Michael Learned. And so I would have to be London host. Yeah. So I would take Michael Learned and her husband out for dinner or whatever. And uh, I had a side obsession with Cagney and Lacey back in the day. Yeah. So Sharon Gless was coming to London. So that was all fine. But she didn't know the show. None of these people knew the show. Just Channel 4 sent them money and a ticket. Mm-hmm. And they were like, all right, I'll do it. So Sharon Gless was going through... Um, customs and the guy obviously recognized her and said oh what are you in town for oh i'm doing something called uh so graham norton and the guy in immigration like pulled a face and went really you're doing that show and so she was like what oh oh so then she started getting herself into a panic thinking i've made a terrible mistake i shouldn't do this show so i had to take her out for dinner so I took her to that place. What's it called? Mirabelle? Yes. The, uh, what was his name? That was Marco Pierre, Pierre White. Pierre White, yeah. I mean, that is a good dinner. I love that restaurant. I mean, that was that's a fancy place. It's just sitting there empty now, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it is, yeah. Someone, someone should open that. Yeah. Anyway, I took her there for dinner. Uh, you know, not cheap. I'm spending a lot of money on Sharon's dinner. Charming, charming, charming. Everything will be fine. It'll be all lovely. Da, da, da. Spend all this money. Sign the thing. Da, da, da. I'm taking her out. She is appeased. She's looking forward to the show the next day. We get out. The guy's there to hail us a taxi. And he looks at her and looks at me. And he goes, oh, you're not doing his show, are you? <gasps> <laughs> Bit of a waste of money. Uh, <laughs> You've spoken candidly about relationships. In the past, you've said every man, no matter how young or fey, has something of the alpha in him. Having a famous boyfriend must add a particular kind of a dimension to a partnership. What impact do you think fame has had on your past relationships? Um, it's difficult, isn't it? Because I, on one level, I don't know mm. because I can't turn it off and on. So it... Mm. The relationship I've had, I'm in them. Um, And I think it's pretty clear within a date or two if people are only interested in that. How do you know? Oh, you know. Should I give you some hints? Okay. (laughs) It's it's when they say that they've been working on a book and do you know any publishers? I haven't. Well, I had that after a relationship broke up Mm. and I think it was like a blackmail threat. (laughs) <laughs> and a book I, about you well it was about him but I was going to be in it and I went oh that's a really good idea uh, let me put you in touch with my agent uh, they'll get you there and because I knew he was never going to write a book <laughs> do, you, <laughs> do you do you when you meet somebody and they desperately want to go to a red carpet event yeah that's a big red flag the other one is if you kind of go oh should we uh, you know on a Tuesday should we meet for dinner um, where do you want to go? And suddenly they go, to some huge, big, posh restaurant. You're like, okay. Yes. I kind of thought more, <laughs> I was thinking more Nando's. Yes. But uh, okay, let's do that. 
that's that kind of frightens you off. I remember going on a, a date once, a Tinder date once, and oh, this poor guy, I felt so sorry for him. So we'd met prior to this at um, some charity event, some Irish charity event. And so when we meet, and I knew that we had already met at this charity event, I said, oh, so how come you were at the charity event? And now this was sort of nice of him, but sort of stupid of him to tell me. He went, oh, uh, my friend is a journalist and she was invited to the charity event. And I think friend was more than, it wasn't more than a friend, it was his flatmate, I think, was oh a journalist. So we're having, <laughs> we're having a first date chat, mm-hmm. you know, do you have any brothers and sisters, that kind of stuff. But she'd obviously pushed him out the door with a list of questions. <laughs> and bless him, he was so bad at it. So I'd be going, you know, uh, yes, I have a, a one sister. She's four years older than me. She's a librarian. And then he'd go, have you ever been drunk presenting your show? <laughs> uh, no. And I'd be like, hmm, <laughs> I wonder if that's on the list. Oh, my God. Uh, bless him. Uh, yes. So how long did you go out with him for? <laughs> Five years. <laughs> well, dating, we can put that to the side because earlier this year, he got married. I did, yes. To your partner, Jono. Yes. He is vegan. And you, as we've heard... <laughs> certainly are not does it lead to arguments Uh, no it really doesn't Mm. what it's led to is that I now more or less live in a vegan house yeah you know the dog eats meat Mm. and I can smuggle a scotch egg in occasionally Uh, but but by and large it's it's a vegan household and I held out for things like yogurts and regular milk for a while but I I have to have given them up because actually, you know, I found very nice yogurts. I found really nice milks and I don't need them. It feels as if the relationship is about give and take. But you have said in the past, I would prefer to live alone for the rest of my life rather than live with towels that were folded incorrectly. It just means it's that thing, isn't it? Where I think if you are alone, the, the longer you're alone, the harder any of this stuff is because... Mm. There's a place for everything. And, da, da, da. and so sometimes I have to remind myself to prioritise Jono and our relationship mm. over, you know, where something should be. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I have, yeah. to, I have to kind of go, no, Graham, this thing brings you so much joy and happiness. Yeah. And, and actually that is just you being a bit of a dick uh, because that's where it's always been. It doesn't need to be there. Your new book is called Forever Home, your usual blend of dark humour, dry wit and emotional heft. It's set in Ireland, where, as we've said, you still spend some time every year, along with houses in London and New York. Of the three places, in which are you happiest? It's difficult because they're happy for all sorts of reasons. You know, so long as I've got John and the dog, then... That's great. Uh, London is where my friends are and where my career is. Mm. I can relax in Ireland in a way that I can't relax anywhere else. Mm. And and that's where family is. And that's probably where, 
you know, I'm at home in a very different way there because I know those people as much as they know me, if you know what I mean. But equally, New York is great just mm. because there's anonymity there and, and it's sort of old people fun, New York. I mean, it's full of young people fun too, but it's lots of old people fun, like theatre and exhibitions. They deliver everything. Mm. You know, it's, it's, it's good as you get a bit creaky. So you're not moving into that stage in your life where you just spend the whole time in Cork, like growing pumpkins or, or wholesome fun? No. If I ever grow anything, it won't be a pumpkin. It'll be potato for the winter, tomato for the summer. Thank you very much. <laughs> you said that there's a lot of luck in the industry, a lot of luck in this game. Do you consider yourself lucky? I have to. I mean, if I'm not lucky, who is? You know, so I have to say that I'm I'm lucky. A friend of mine, her father died recently and uh, at the funeral, she quoted him. I think he used to say, you don't need to be the best. You just need to show up. Yes. And I think that's what I've done over the years is prove that to a fault. <laughs> it's, it's about the, you know, carrying on, carrying on. Uh, that's the key. Graham Norton, thank you for coming to my house. Thank you for bringing me the Scotch egg. And thank you for comfort eating with me. Thank you. This episode of Comfort Eating was produced by Jack Claraman. The executive producer is Lucy Greenwell. The music was written by Axel Coquitier. Mixing and sound design was by Solomon King. If you like comfort eating, then please go and leave us a review and you can follow or subscribe so that you never miss an episode. And use the hashtag comforteatingpod to get in touch about the podcast or share your own comfort eating delights. This is The Guardian. 